This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, We bring on April Engelberg to talk uh, current affairs within the city proper, and she joins us right now on Toronto Today. What do you make of this one? This is, it's going to be really, really difficult, I think. And we've talked about cats on leashes before and other stuff where I think people have thought the, the city's going in too far, especially in terms of pets and animals, April. Good morning, Greg. Yes, to be honest, I'm not sure that this proposed bylaw is going to do anything. So what they're looking to do is if your dog attacks some, someone or another dog or whatever, you, your dog would be on this public registry of dangerous dogs where there's it says what the breed is and the postal code that the dog lives in. I'm not really sure what that would accomplish. Or if your dog is involved in more than one, you know, minor incidents, same deal. And then on top of it, um, this counselor, Fletcher, is asking for uh, $500,000 of city money to use like a public campaign to make people aware. Um, I'm not sure that either of these things are going to make a big difference, especially because some of it is um, the provincial, it's, it's under provincial jurisdictions, the dog owners. Uh, liability act and they're asking for changes but once again this is a situation where city of the city of toronto spends a lot of time debating an issue that ultimately they just end up asking the federal government to do something which likely won't even happen yeah and i'd make the case when we're talking about um the the city might list and post um the dog owner's postal code the dog's name the breeding we don't do this with people and I'm not saying we should. Like we don't, we don't do this with people. So we're going to do this with uh, with, with Rover or Rex. I'm not. I'm not sure that's going to fly legally either. Exactly. I don't really know what this is going to accomplish. I guess is the city trying to do something that they actually have the ability to do? But mm. I'm not really sure who's going to be going to go read a dangerous dog registry and then you know memorizing a dog's name and postal code and you know keeping their eye out. I, again, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm not, you know, I don't have a dog. I'm not constantly in the dog park. So maybe some people are asking for this. Maybe there are certain difficult dogs that are in dog parks. And in that yeah. case, I might defer to them on this one. But I'm not sure what this is going to accomplish. Um, let's put a bow on, on the city budget last week. Um, the budget passes with an 18 to 6 vote among councillors. Uh, the property tax drops to 9.5%, but still a lot. Um, and the police ended up getting what they wanted at the end of the day. Is there a notable winner or loser in the process for you? I think the budget showed, it, it was actually very good news for Olivia Chow because it showed she's able to get this done. She had uh, 18 city councillors voting in favor of her, of her budget, which is substantial, right? There's only 25 city councillors. So that was good. Um, and I think basically she just had to make the concession with the police getting the additional $12.6 million. I'm not saying it was right the way they did their weird campaign to get money by posting mm. posting all these statistics on social media, basically doing like a public PR campaign to try to get an additional $12 million. I found that whole thing to be strange. Um, but I understand why she did it because Olivia Chow just, you know, is trying to gain as much support within city council and different branches of the city as she can. So this enabled her to get a two, sorry, a 9.5% property tax increase. And in doing so, she ended up 
giving an additional $12.6 billion to the police. I want to get to these um, automated tickets for police, speaking of, uh, in a second. But um, I, I'm shocked by this number that uh, you sent me about the Landlord-Tenant Board. Um, they're processing fewer cases despite added resources. And constantly you hear um, you hear a lot of complaints from landlords specifically saying, my tenant's not paying, I can't get them out, there's property damage. Um, it, it's not all one-sided for sure. There's tenants that have complaints about landlords, but yeah. it just doesn't feel like these things get resolved quick enough for, for renters and, and owners. Exactly. So there's such a backlog at, at the landlord-tenant tribunal, and it's, it's a problem because there's, it's, it's, it's not, there's not exactly justice if it takes this long to get something done. So exa- you gave the example of the landlord that by the time it, it takes a few months until if someone, if a tenant doesn't pay, it takes a few months until they actually get before the, the adjudicator. And then once they do that, then it takes then there's 60 days for the order. And then once they do that, then there's more time till it's actually enforced. Same would go for a tenant, for example, if they're having their, um, rent increased above the guideline. That's just one example of a reason why they might go there. Um, or if a tenant gets wrongly evicted because the landlord's pretending that they're going to move in so that they can kick them out and then try to get higher rent, right? L- lay, so, this, uh, lay this out for our audience. Do, do cities and municipalities need to get louder and push this towards the province? Because I, I hear so many people say, I don't know why there isn't more push towards the Ford government to fix some of the things that are under their jurisdiction, but we don't always hear it from mayors and city councilors. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. There, It's not a good enough solution, but it's, it's for me, it's not just this backlog of the landlord uh, tribunal. It's not just that. It's also just certain elements of yeah. um, for example, I've mentioned this before, but the fact that any any residential place that was first occupied after November 2018, the fact that the rent can go up by absolutely any amount on an annual basis, is it's not secure for tenants. So everyone's freaking out because, oh, there's a 9.5% property tax, and I'm not trying to say that that's nothing. But for people that are renting, there can go up by absolutely any amount. I'm talking 20, 30% annually. And that's not secure for them either. So, yes, it is a big problem. Mm. I got to leave the other stuff, but we'll talk next week, April. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Martha McCarthy is the founding partner of McCarthy Hansen and Company. And she joins us now on Toronto Today. Appreciate your time. Hi, Greg. How long has this been a problem, and is it a worse problem even now, Martha, than it was a few years ago? Well, um, how long has this been a problem? I think um, I, I don't want to give you a pat answer, but maybe since the beginning of time. I mean, this this problem relates to basic power dynamics between the genders, right? So um, what's interesting about uh, the story that was written this weekend in the Toronto Star by uh, two journalists who I think spent several years uh, interviewing lawyers is uh, how serious the culture of silence is, how few people who have been subject to discrimination in, in the workplace, in the legal profession, are prepared to talk about it when, mm. of course, we're supposed to be freedom fighters who who fight for the rights 
of others, you know, and that's kind of what's, what we expect different from lawyers maybe, but that's not perhaps understanding what it's like to be um, a victim of gender-based violence or, or discriminatory behavior, which, which I think is the thing that is, comes out of this story that continues to be so prevalent. And you face and you and you face this yourself um, in the industry, and and especially at a younger age. And I can imagine how much that takes to push through, uh, battle against it, and and move past it, especially when it happens multiple times. Martha, that's terrible. Yeah, well, I mean, partly um, what I was trying to say when I was interviewed by Robert Cribb and Emma Jarrett was that if you want to define it widely if you want to just say any form of sex discrimination any form of treating um women as inferior to men including really inappropriate discriminatory behavior including sexual harassment like from the day i was called to the bar until today i have no hesitation in saying it's happened to me once a week with clients with with my peers with judges like it's just it's a it's a problem that has existed since women entered the workforce broadly and 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 isn't getting better and we we've got to start talking about it more you know the very few people that they interviewed were prepared to be named yeah like even that my i agreed to have my picture in the Toronto Star after I was on a really busy case for the last couple of weeks. I said I wasn't available. They said no one will sit for a picture. Okay, and they're they're you know we're supposed to be a profession that stands up for what is right. But I don't know if you if if you saw that that last week also Stats Canada overall released uh, a new report about experiences of sexual harassment in the workplace. And one in two women uh, currently report in a Canadian study released last week, 40% of women have experienced harassment or sexual harassment in the workplace yeah. in general, not just lawyers in general. And if you, if you look at older girl, older people between the ages of 25 and 34, it climbs to 60%. Like that's just what's going on in our workplaces. We often hear the phrase, Martha McCarthy is joining us, by the way, founding partner of McCarthy, Hanson and Company. We often hear the phrase old boys club. Do you notice a generational gap there where younger lawyers in their 20s and 30s, male lawyers, are are doing better? And at the very minimum, um, the maximum would be uh, you know doing nothing that could even be perceived as harassment or you clear up any kind of misunderstanding right away. But are they are they sort of seeing something, saying something more than some of their older contemporaries in your mind? I think so. I mean, I, I, I hope our, our next generation that we're all collectively raising here are going to be better and we're going to learn. But I mean, how, how encouraging should any of us be right now when women have uh, lost their reproductive freedom in the United States? Like this is serious. Gender inequality is a very serious and pressing issue. And I'm not sure it's any better than it was in the 1950s. 
as we sit currently. Well, here's what's changed a ton. And this is noteworthy. Most law schools are the ratios. You've probably seen some of the ratios for undergrads of men in universities. Like as I'm raising two young boys and those numbers worry me that the, the percentage is about 56 to 44, in some cases as high as 61 to 39 for undergrads. To your point, law schools are far more prominently graduating women than men and yet men hold 56% of the jobs in the industry. So that's a problem yeah. as well. I, I think both of, both of those things are problems in their own right. And continue to be paid more. Yeah. yeah. And, and so those are concerning moments that we're graduating more and, and we're, we're not retaining more women in the workplace to do what they were trained to do. I do think it's time for us to grasp, hold, and look at ways to change because we can all look at the TV show Mad Men. We can read the book Lessons in Chemistry, and we can say in the 50s and 60s, it was different. And you know what? It doesn't seem to be. And we, we, our generation in particular, we just failed on the yeah. coattails of others and thought we'd made progress. And, 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 and we got to be serious about it. And we got to name names. And we got to let them take our pictures, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I would say that. I, I'd, I'd encourage everybody to read this, and I hope you'll uh, be willing to have more conversations with me about it. It's too important for just a one-off. So, Martha, I, I'm out of time, but I really appreciate you coming on. Let's do this again because it's important. It is that important. Okay, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. With Queen's Park back in session, let's get a preview right now. On the television side joining us is Jaden Lee Lincoln. Jaden, what are we expecting at Queen's Park today? Hi there, Greg. Yeah, it's supposed to be a big day uh, for the first spring sitting. Uh, a lot of us have been back to work uh, for a while now, but MPPs are uh, getting back to work for the first time in 11 weeks. At the top of the agenda, this uh, new legislation uh, that the Ford government um, is uh, proposing called the Get It Done Act, uh, they're uh, claiming that it'll save Ontarians a lot of money in a variety of ways uh, based on taxes and tolls from um, uh, banning future tolls on uh, provincial highways apart from the 407, eliminating the need for drivers to renew their license plates. And uh, this uh, new act would make it harder for future governments to place any provincial carbon tax on Ontarians. We learned a little bit about that last week, but lots going on. We do expect that to be one of the major uh, things that we see this uh, legislation being passed uh, at uh, Queen's Park today. And of course, Bill 124. I, I mean, they're uh, they're doing, I suppose, what the opposition parties, Jaden, would say, well, that's the right thing. Bill 124 shouldn't have existed in the first place. But the opposition parties obviously will probably have to vote along with the repeal because they think, well, yeah, we didn't want it to exist in the first place and the government's finally got it right. So we'll see where that one goes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we heard that decision just last week again. Uh, we know that Bill 124 put a cap on wage increases for public sector workers. That did not go well. And after last uh, week, Ontario's top court deemed it unconstitutional. We do expect to see uh, the repeal of uh, Bill 124 today. So lots of people uh, will be, I think, excited for that. And also, one last thing we are supposed to possibly see a repeal on is uh, the Hazel McCallion Act. Uh, reversing the decision to possibly uh, dissolve the Peel region. Lots to discuss. Hear that. All right, we'll be watching for your report later on today. Jaden, thanks so much. 
You bet. There's Jaden Lee Lincoln joining us. Queens Park uh, in session for the first time in 10 weeks. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Doing the work over the weekend uh, on this story uh, to update us is crime reporter for the Toronto Star, Jennifer Pagliaro, and she joins us now on Toronto Today. It's nice to have you back. I appreciate it. Hey, Greg, how are you doing? Well, I'm good. When you got the word about this story, uh, again, your your adrenaline must have started pumping because you've been covering this story of the 18 girls, and, and I'm sure you'll cover it right up until there's an eventual trial. What did you think when you found out this news? Yeah, I'll be really honest. We get so many press releases from the Toronto police on a daily basis, as you can imagine, and sometimes we're working on other things. And this Wilson Station incident sort of slipped right by me. It didn't register. You know, I have colleagues at the Star who do really fast breaking news uh, when stuff like this happens. And I didn't initially notice even that there was a 14-year-old girl involved. And um, luckily, uh, I was tipped that I should really care about this press release. And uh, it turns out that I really, really do care. Some of the conditions on her bail, and you wrote about it, um, she was allowed to be out on curfew until 7 o'clock. With what you can say, and I know there's things you can't, was this girl attending a school? Yeah, so that was interesting because um, I covered this girl's bail hearing. I covered um, all of the girl's bail hearings in the swarming case. And initially, each girl was put on what is essentially house arrest. So they weren't allowed to be out of the house except with the person that was assigned to be responsible for them. And for the most part, um, that meant that they also weren't allowed to be attending a school in person. Um, However, you know, the youth criminal justice system is a bit of a black hole in the sense that we don't often find out about hearings or about changes. We can't access records. And so in writing this story, I found out that they had uh, that the scrolls um, defense team had applied for what's called a bail variation, which essentially is asking to change the bail pr- plan in mm-hmm. some way. And so they asked for this curfew and were granted uh, a 7 p.m. curfew. So beyond the obvious, um, and if she's uh, guilty of what she's accused of Thursday, it, it adds to the, 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 the sheet and the legal complications. But was she violating any aspects of her bail um, just by being out or was she not because she had a seven o'clock curfew? Yeah. So when I talked to her lawyer, her lawyer says she technically wasn't violating the like being out of the house part because she got this bail variation. However, obviously, each of the girls who were uh, alleged to be involved in the girl swarm, it being a violent incident, it is um, it is a violation to be involved in any other violent incident or to be involved in something involving a weapon. And so what she's alleged to have done at Wilson Station is like a very clear violation of those bail conditions. Um, and um, I obviously a lot of the reaction um, that one of your paragraphs got in your story was the idea that the criminal defense lawyer was going to attempt to get a, a new bail hearing. And, and that's the job. That's the job of the defense lawyer is to try and get the client out. But, um, you know, I, I imagine that's got that's garnered quite the reaction. And, and the question as to whether she'd get that again now at this point, given these new charges. Yeah, it definitely sparks a lot of feelings. And I think that's valid. And I think it's good. We should have these conversations, right? Because you're talking about a child and criminal justice. And there's, there's just a lot of questions that come up with that. Uh, whether she'll receive bail, um, you know, her lawyer was honest with me that mm. the Crown in the swarming case wants to revoke her uh, initial bail 
in the swarming case. And then obviously she also has to apply for bail. She's currently in custody on Mm. the charges related to Wilson Station. So she has a real uphill battle, uh, her defense team does, to get her back out on bail. Obviously, there's different um, assumptions and leniency with young people, but yeah. I got a blast, but I want to ask you people come all the time. I'm sure more to you than to me. I'm sure I was asking people were asking me questions yesterday at a big gathering. When's this hockey Canada trial going to start? I'm sure people ask you all the time. When will this swarming case trial start? We really don't have any idea, but it's it's months away, isn't it? Yeah. So the thing I can tell people is there is a preliminary hearing that starts in April. That's going to be a long process because there's so many girls. It's just going to take a long time. And mm. after a few weeks of that, they will eventually book trial dates. Hear that. Hey, Jen, you do great work. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's bring in somebody who I I, I lean on pretty heavily, and I, I'm expecting to see him today in, well, I'll be in a various various state of, of disrepair, but I don't think he will be. He's a primary care sports medicine doc. Yeah, I didn't. I guess we could play him in with this. It's rather emphatic, I suppose. Rushing me on a gurney down the hallway isn't his life's uh, dream. Uh, but he's uh, he has uh, been doing a lot of orthopedic uh, surgical assisting. And there's a chance I'll see him later today. And we've had him on the show before. Here's Dr. Howard Winston. Sorry for the music. It's very cliche, but but so is me getting a meniscus surgery, Dr. Winston. What, what can we say? Ah, uh, you're a pro, Greg. You know, you're not you're not an amateur. You're a veteran. You're hardcore. Yeah. Was I not supposed to have breakfast because I just finished the most amazing omelet? And uh, is that bad? Uh, that's okay. They'll rebook you for another day. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want one, and I, I don't want another summer uh, ruined. Tell the audience. This is great uh, that we've got you. Um, what is the meniscus? Why is it really important? Because you told me, and, and I want you to tell the world. Well, the meniscus uh, is like a shock absorber and a stabilizer, very important structure in the knee. And it's got very uh, high viscoelastic properties, so it's, that's why it can be a shock absorber. You've got two of them, one on the inside of the knee, one on the outside of the knee, and they sit between the thigh bone and the leg bone. They're very important structures in general, and uh, they tolerate a lot of abuse uh, in our early years. But, uh, well, you know, as we get a little bit older... Hey, everything changes. Um, Our body works in one direction. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, all right. Well, I, it's a downward, uh, downward spiral. Um, is this a removal or a repair for me today? You'd think I'd know. It's my own body, my body, well, my choice. Know, honestly, is it a removal or a repair? It's really a game time call. Um, you okay. know, even even the orthopedic surgeon when they go in, they've got lots of information, most likely including an MRI, which is the most sensitive test we have outside of being in the knee and looking at the structure, but. Uh, the majority, and I say high majority, are meniscectomies, where they remove a portion of the uh, meniscus. Very few are reparable, and those are really different numbers between Canada and the States because they're very aggressive in the States. They try and repair almost everything in the States uh, at a fault sometimes because it ends up just re-tearing. you got to go back for, for the surgery. But, you know, you're seeing Dr. Smith, and he's probably one of the best in the world at this uh, procedure. And uh, he uh, he will make all his decisions uh, right mm. in the OR. That's what I keep telling him. I keep telling him he's one of the. I'm, I'm going to tell him in about four hours he's one of the best in the world. And we'll see how that uh, goes over. So for people who know a really elite NBA player, uh, Joel Embiid, just had this. He had a meniscus tear in his right knee. Um, how right. long would it take a really elite athlete to be back at 100 percent from a meniscus repair? And and then do me. I'm not. 
I'm not Joel Embiid, as you're well aware. Yeah, see, the problem is you, you don't know the full state of the knee when you, you, before you go in there. So if we're talking about the meniscus, everything else is pristine in the knee, then it's probably with uh, 10 days maybe recovery. Uh, they're doing this full-time, right? You and I work. We have full-time jobs. We have very select time to uh, attend physio and do rehab. These guys, they did dedicate all of their time to that. So they're going to certainly expedite the process. But if they've got some degenerative changes in the knee, that's going to interfere interfere with the process and interfere with the rate of healing hey you're really important to me you've gotten me through some pain before i know you'll do it again today and uh, i just want to give you props it's uh i've enjoyed our uh our connection and and at some point i'll be healthier and i'll stop calling i will it's always a privilege greg (laughs) and i think it's the left knee i i think it is but i I gotta double check i think i think i wrote down left but i gotta be sure when i get there i'll i'll see you later today Greg, they'll ask you 10 times before the surgery. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll answer nine uh, with the word slurring. Thank you, Doc. Appreciate it. All the best. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. And we bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Happy Scotiabank Arena Anniversary Day, first of all, Colin. Oh, and happy back to the legislature <laughs> to you in return. Yeah, there's been just as much success for the opposition parties uh, over the last four or five months and five or six years as some of those uh, playoff teams for uh, for the Leafs and the uh, and the Raptors and whatnot. Um, we're seeing we're going to see a lot of legislation getting tabled that the Ford government has actually kind of talked a fair amount about. Right. License plates, Bill 124 being repealed. Um, no toll roads like it's a lot of it. Not surprising that they're going to lay out today. Right. Yeah, I, I, and you can almost see this as kind of laying out their pre-election or pre-pre-election agenda, right? I mean, you got to think about uh, their timelines before 2026. They need to start getting stuff done now if they want to really pre-position themselves as the party that got it done in 2026. And, and this is kind of the midway point between elections where now they have to start to continue to govern, but also start to turn the ship uh, towards uh, 2026. So that's a lot of what this new omnibus legislation, the Get It Done Act, is going to be about, right? Uh, Promising to eliminate tolls future tolls and highways. There's no proposal to do that, but this is them saying we're the party of the low-tax little guy um, and and we're not necessarily going to uh, allow other governments to tamper with that either. The other issues that are in the on the front burner for the government is uh, the post-secondary sector. Yeah. You've got colleges and universities that are begging for more money, asking the government to increase tuition, and saying that they're in a bit of an existential crisis uh, due to the federal government international student cap. So what is the government going to do with that? They've signaled to us that they're going to be increasing funding, but by how much and how is that funding going to come out is it going to be with strings mm. attached as, as this government likes to do that's another thing on the on the front burner as well and that call i'm glad you brought that up Colin, because that's a really interesting mix for the opposition parties to get in on uh because obviously there's been a call among universities to let them raise tuition and doug ford says a week and a half ago he's not going to do that um that said there's going to be more heat potentially on uh, the minister of colleges and universities jill dunlop there's going to be more a lot of this onus has been on the federal government for work visas and whatnot but it really is the province that kind of controls and is meant to cap limits at a lot of these colleges and universities. 
Well, now the province has been given an enormous responsibility, all provinces have, by the federal government, right? The, pro- the, the province has been given an allotment of international students, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 230,000 or so. They have to decide how to split that between all of the colleges and universities, so really they can pick favorites here. Uh, they also now have the responsibility of creating an attestation letter that has to go to the student who's been approved by university to then prove to immigration officials in Canada that, yes, they are uh, green-lit to attend this college or university. So the province has to do all of that while at the same time deciding how much provincial funding additional they're going to give to colleges and universities to help them survive all of this. And colleges, their debts are on the province's books. So if they start going into huge deficits, that's yeah. where it's going to encounter issues for the province. Um, I'm fascinated to get your perspective on on what you expect from the Ontario Liberals over the next six months, really. They've got nine seats. They have a new leader. Right now, she um, she has, does not have a seat in the legislature. And I think we could concur that hamstrung Stephen Del Duca a fair bit. I expect her to run in Milton, but I think the Liberals still have a lot of work to do. To They got a lot of attention in the last half of 23, Colin, but they've got a lot of work to do to keep in the spotlight these next several months. Well, let's start with Bonnie Crombie herself, who is undergoing a bit of a change within how she approaches politics herself. Remember, she's been the mayor of Mississauga, and when you are in that leadership position, you're often the one handing out the, you know, the dollars or, or making sure that communities are taken care of. And you deal with opposition, right? Now she's in a position where she's got to change her mindset to start always opposing everything that the government does. It is a very strange position for a mm. former leader to now find herself in. So she's doing a lot of learning, my understanding is, kind of getting up to speed on all of the provincial files, where the liberals have stood in the past, where they intend to go in the future. So there's a lot of that work that has to be done. Yes, she has to now work on rebuilding the party, getting in donations, uh, essentially rebuilding the grassroots, listening to the grassroots so that they can create sound policy for the next election campaign. And then what is she going to do with the legislature? Milton uh, is going to open up within the next six months or so. Is she going to run in that by-election? There are a lot of positive indications. But you also have to kind of look at it from Doug Ford's perspective. He's blown past the NDP and now focusing on Bonnie Crombie. So that is a huge signal to voters out there that uh, the progressive conservatives see her as their primary opponent and, and the primary threat. So how this is a really interesting mix for yeah. this legislative session, how they're going to treat Bonnie Crombie, because they're going to look to frame her in every single piece of legislation and policy that they bring out. I think it's, yeah, I think the session's got a lot more intrigue than, uh, than say, a year ago at this time, Colin. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There's Colin DeMello, uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief.